invite you once again to take a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. Page 955 in these Bibles in the pews. We're in a study on the book of 1 Corinthians. And last week we came to, uh, or the past two weeks we've been in chapter 6 and 7, which really go together. And I, I mentioned that that these uh, two chapters, and especially chapter 7 that we begin today, um, deals with uh, sex and marriage and singlehood and being a widow. And, and I mentioned that parents have the responsibility and the privilege to teach our children about sex and, and about life. And that can be very intimidating to some of us if, if we never had parents who talked openly with us about such things. Ideally, dads should talk to sons and moms to daughters. Uh, you can't delegate this to the church or the youth pastor or a Christian school, and we certainly don't want it delegated to our cultures, pop, pop cultures, movies and music and television, which is all ready and willing to teach your children exactly what it wants them to know and what to do. And, and so as parents, it's not about having the talk, it's the talks. It's from the time they're young, answering questions and encouraging questions and never demeaning a question with like, well, we don't talk about things like that. Or you need to go ask your mother about that. Uh, it's answering the question and realize children, they don't want the whole volume. Typically, they're asking one question, they want a simple answer, and then you let them think about it for a while. You give an answer, but you don't give more than they're asking and then a little later they'll come back and ask something else and then you answer that but you want to create an atmosphere where questioning is encouraged and not ridiculed uh, I had a woman after the first service to come to up and tell me she said I had a fantastic experience growing up uh, with with my parents talking very openly uh, continually about that and I said well, what did they say she said it wasn't that it was that they showed they were very affectionate all the time and that taught us a whole lot in the family. Uh, so with th those thoughts in mind, let's look at chapter 7. And I'll, uh, I listed more verses than I plan to read. I'll read through verse 7 of chapter 7. Hear God's word. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for wisdom and understanding in a, in a day of confusion in and out of the church uh, about marriage and singleness and sexual immorality and we pray for guidance uh, now as we look into your word in Christ's name. Amen. Um, as I've told to, to you, Paul is, is in Ephesus. He planted the church in Corinth. He stayed there 18 months and now 
maybe as much as another year or two have passed, and they have written a letter to him, at least one, and asked about a number of matters, matters, issues in the church. I'm sorry about the air quotes. I, I realize this is not the week for doing that, but uh, if you've been watching the news. But they've been re- writing about these issues. Uh, lawsuits, you had people suing one another and going immediately into the civil courts within the church, and Paul addresses that in chapter 6. They had a high-profile uh, uh, incestuous relationship going on within the church that some of the people seem proud about. Uh, he addresses that. And they had members of the church frequenting uh, temple prostitutes. That was one of the ways you worshipped in Corinth. And so if you were here last week, the latter part of chapter 6, he deals with that. Now, to understand this passage, and especially the very beginning when you've got the quotations around, uh, it is not lawful for uh, uh, to marry in some cases, and another translation says it's not lawful for a man to touch a woman, we have to understand the background of what was happening in the Greek culture. I mentioned this last week that the Corinthians, those Christians in Corinth, uh, that came from the Greek-Roman world, saw a dichotomy between the body and the soul, soul slash spirit, whatever you want to call it. So here was the body, here was the soul. And they viewed these these as basically that the body uh, seduced the soul and basically all the body did was drag the soul down into all these various vices. So two schools of thought, two schools of philosophy arose about that. You know, one group were the hedonist. And the hedonistic view was, hey, only the soul's going to survive after death. What you do with your body is not important. Therefore, enjoy all the pleasure you can because it won't matter in the long run. Uh, so they, they were the ones that he addressed last week in chapter 6 that seemed to be condoning uh, joining your body with a prostitute. They didn't have an issue with that. They were hedonistic. The group opposite that, the other group, were called the ascetics. And the ascetic view was that through rigid self-discipline, even self-mutilation, you would curb the body's desires. And they were probably the ones teaching this quotation here in chapter 1, which is, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. What, as I also said, this translation is difficult by those who know these things, where it can be translated, it's good for talking like a married man not to have sex with his wife. It's good for a man not to touch a woman in a sensual sense. That they were saying this to the married people. That this ascetic view was you may be married, stay married, but from here on out, uh, you know, for the protection of your soul, do not engage in sexual relationship with your spouse. So that's what Paul is addressing here, and he, right off the bat, says in verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, which was so prevalent in Corinth, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. Now, he's saying because of the present immorality, uh, marriage is a good idea. I remember reading a history of Christian missions throughout the centuries, and when I got to the Christian, the section on Christian missions to the islands of the Pacific Ocean. And you get into, I mean, there's these thousands of islands and how these missionaries would go. And they would not allow a single 
a single man to be a missionary in those situations. They said the temptations were just too great. They had a term saying gone native. When a missionary basically went and fell and apostatized, they said, well, he, he went native. So they wouldn't allow that because of the prevalence of, of immorality in those places. Now, you should know by way of background that there is uh, speculation, uh, a lot of speculation, by those who study the scriptures closely that Paul had been married at one time. And here are the reasons why they say that. I'll give them to you briefly. One, he, he was a Pharisee, and one of the requirements for being a Pharisee was you had to be married. The second, his wife had either died or perhaps had deserted him after he was converted. Third, reason some think he was married is that when he gets to writing about marriage, not just here, but especially in the book of Ephesians and, and other places in the scriptures, he writes as a person who seems to have a lot of experience. He's got a lot of insight. If he had never been married, and of course it's the Holy Spirit and the, the Spirit of God revealing himself, but he writes as someone who's had firsthand experience with these things. Well, that being said, we know at this time he was not married if he had ever been married. And he's not saying here that being single is superior to being married. So, but he does in verses 2 to 6, he gives some practical advantages of being married. Um, I, I won't reread it all, but the general rule in life that we see is that most people will be married. That's a general rule when God created marriage there in the opening chapters of Genesis. Here was the first man, Adam, Adam, which means from the ground. And he says it's not good for man to be alone. And he creates a helper suitable for him, this complementary companion. And so we see that's a, a, a blessing, a, a blessing to, to humanity. And so as a general rule, most people will be married. But uh, he's listing here a specific rule, and that is that a good reason to be married is because of the temptation to sexual immorality. But in verse 2, he says celibacy, or the single state, is to be the exception and not the rule. And so although there are good things about celibacy, it's not a good idea in a sexually saturated society like Corinth or Macon or pretty much anywhere uh, today. And, and so in lieu of that, Paul says, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And the have there, the verb, is meaning in a, in a sexual sense. One purpose of marriage is to avoid sexual immorality, sex outside the protection of marriage. And so the biblical pattern for marriage is monogamy, one man, one woman. It's true there were cases of polygamy in the Old Testament, typically with the wealthy and the powerful like David and Solomon and others, but when you read those passages, their polygamy typically brought disaster on countless lives. And by the time we reach the New Testament, marriage is clearly monogamous. One husband, one wife. That's God's pattern. And so we have Jesus' words about marriage. And it flies in the face of how some today caricature same-sex marriage by saying, well, Jesus did not address the subject of homosexuality. Well, there, there's more than one problem with that perspective. One is Jesus said he came not to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. 
to keep every aspect of it. Well, much of the Old Testament law dealt with sexuality and the prohibition with homosexual activity. Secondly, when he did speak about marriage, he clearly spoke about a husband and wife. In Matthew 19, verses 3 to 6, the Pharisees came up to him, I'm reading, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. So the purpose, or one of the purposes of marriage, is to help men and women avoid sexual immorality. It's not the only purpose, and this is not the only reason for marriage, obviously. Now in verses 3 to 5, he describes that physical relationship within marriage. Some of the Christians in Corinth didn't forbid marriage, but as I mentioned earlier, they were prohibiting sexual relations between the husband and the wife. And in response to that wrong thinking, Paul gives this in verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. The picture and the wording is, though you owe a debt to another person. Now, this was radical teaching. This was radical teaching in Paul's day. Uh, you only need a cursory reading of Roman history to know that at this time in history, marriage essentially was for legal issues, uh, matters, and, and to have a family. And a wife had very few rights. She was to raise children and to keep house. And it was just understood and expected that the husband would be have numerous mistresses. That was just, that. like I said, you can read that pretty much on anything with, with first century, any literature from first century Roman history. And so for him to say, you know, you are both on equal footing, you both owe one another, your body's not your own, it's his, his body is not his own, it, it's hers, it's hers, it was very, very new and radical. So how then can we ensure, if you're married, your spouse's needs are met? Look at verse 4. By remembering your body belongs to your mate. The verb literally means the other person has authority over it, has exclusive claim to it. Um, the husband and wife have authority over each other's bodies. So there can be an exception to this rule, and that is that the husband and wife are not to withhold those normal marital rights from each other except by mutual consent and agreement. That's what he says in verse 5. That you agree upon a period of abstinence, a mutual agreement for a limited time. And that the couple has discussed this, this matter and this course of action and they are of one mind in that. And here, abstinence is for an important reason that they may devote, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now, there are two views on this. There's lots of views on this whole passage. But one view is that, especially for prayer, say, okay, we're going we're gonna to abstain and focus just like in the area of fasting. We're going to fast from sex to devote ourselves to prayer. The other view is you should always have the sexual relationship active in your marriage except for something so important as prayer. 
I don't know about the second view, but that was uh, strongly taught by one of the persons I was studying this week. But maybe there's a special need for prayer in the family, in the local church, uh, that may demand that the husband and the wife drop everything in order to give themselves to special prayer. But then note at verse 5, it's for a brief period. Now, I don't know if he means minutes, hours, days, I guess a few days. I mean, you could say, well, we did have a blessing. We abstained, you know, while we had a prayer before the meal last night or something like that. But then come together. Why? Here's the key line. So that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. To withhold yourself from your spouse is going to subject him or her to temptation. And uh, now now it's really getting where I can relate to this. Um, I was reading a book called The Myth of the Greener Grass. It's about adultery, and it, uh, it's a biblical survey about that. And, it, and I came across an example that I told the first service. I wasn't going to mention now, but I'm, I had too many people say, no, you've got to mention that in the second service. There's this uh, woman that comes to see a Christian counselor, and she's complaining because she says all my husband thinks about is sex. And the counselor, and I don't know if the counselor was a man or a woman, but the counselor asked, how often do you have relations? And she sat there and thought for a few minutes, and then she said, on his birthday. I gave him sex on his birthday. No wonder. I mean, it, okay, uh, I, I joke with my wife that sometimes I wake up and say I had a terrible nightmare last night. I dreamed I was married to a birthday woman. And so she knows, she, uh, she knows that story. But uh, that woman, yes, is the man guilty? Yes, should the man control himself? Of course, yes, yes, yes. But she was putting in him, putting him in a position of temptation. Look at verse 7 and following. Now I want to talk about singleness and celibacy. What is celibacy? Are single, being single and celibate synonymous? No. A person who is celibate is single, but a person may be single and not celibate because celibacy means that you are not engaged or involved with sexual activity. Got it? So when Paul has the gift of celibacy, it wasn't just a single life. There are plenty of singles that would not fit that definition today. So what is, how is this a gift? Some of us in this church and as believers are divinely equipped to live a single life. Others are suited for marriage. And God gives each person his gracious gifts. Some desire or have an inclination to be married. I can tell you from the time I was about 17 years old, I wanted to be married. I realize that's very rare. At least nobody talked about it, none of my friends. But I knew internally I was not wired to live a single life. So I did not, I I was married at 22, right out of college. I mean, college, the best six years of my life. I mean, I'd get married right out of college, and I was the first of all my friends to be married. And so I can't talk from the experience side of of not marrying until my late 30s or or 40s or something like that. Uh, So I have to go off the Apostle Paul's experience here. And he refers to this, his situation, as a gift of grace. The word is charisma. It's a thing given to him, a wholesome thing given to him from God. And his comments were not meant as that a command should be for every believer to be married. His point was, if you are single, that is good. 
If you are married or get married, then stay married and retain normal marital relations, for that is of God. Spirituality is not determined by marital status. Okay? We need to hear that in the church. Spirituality is not determined by your marital status. Verse 7, when Paul wishes that all were as he was, he's speaking in, in light of the great freedom and the independence he had as a single person to serve Christ. But he in no way pushes that like this should be the norm for all believers. He had freedom to move about. Who could have done the things the Apostle Paul did if they were married? Three missionary travels around the Mediterranean, shipwrecked, snake-bitten on this island, and then thrown in jail. Riots happened uh, in the city of Ephesus and uh, all sorts of things. And so it was part of what enabled that from a human standpoint is he was single. He did not have the concerns of a family. Now, you and I know that you can use being single and you can use being married as an excuse for lack of involvement in God's work. Yeah, you can say, well, I can't do that. I can't go be involved in that mission. I'm not married. Well, I can't do that. I can't go be involved in that mission. I'm married. Now, I can tell you this. And then when you have children, you've got a great excuse not to do much of anything. And if you have a disabled child, trumps everybody. I'm, and it is funny. I mean, it would be funny. When it's, I, my wife has not let me use that. Because <laughs> I've tried many times. Oh, we can't really do that. You know, we, we've got to stay home with Stephen. No, 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 we're not doing that. We're going. We're going to do that. So you probably, well, you probably hadn't. The story's told of these two guys out fishing on a Sunday morning, and they're, they're uh, sitting in the boat, and they're fishing. They've been out there for a couple of hours, and the guy, uh, one guy says to the other, said, don't you feel guilty about being out here? He said, what do you mean? He said, well, this is when church is going on. Shouldn't we be at church? I mean, wouldn't you be at church if we weren't out here fishing? He said, man, I can't go to church. My wife is sick. <laughs> John Stott. John Stott was a speaker and author. Many of you read one of his 50-plus books. Uh, As a teenager, I read his book, Basic Christianity. He died back in 2011, but in 2005, he was listed in Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. And after his death, Billy Graham said, The evangelical world has lost one of its greatest spokesmen, and I have lost one of my close personal friends and advisors. I look forward to seeing him again when I go to heaven. It it has often been said that if the evangelical church had wanted to elect a pope, it would have been John Stott. John Stott never married, and he chose to live a single life. He lived a celibate life, and he said about that, Quote, the gift of singleness is more a vocation than an empowerment, although to be sure God is faithful in supporting those he calls. So being single allowed John Stott to travel all over the world to teach and preach and to write basically with abandon because he did not have responsibilities uh, that come with being married. That's what Paul is saying. So here couple of personal observations uh, that I'd like to make that I draw from this passage. One, getting married will not make you a stronger Christian. It will not instantly change you. 
it will only expose what is already there. Therefore, pursue sanctification while you are single. Some Christian singles live very passive lives. Not everyone, but some do. And often there is very little accountability. And that becomes very fertile ground for secret sins and areas of disobedience to arise. But as newlyweds discover, the single you is still inside of the married you. And so if you've not really been pressing on toward godliness, pursuing holiness, growing in sanctification as a single person, or as one writer said, if while you are single you are lazy, irresponsible, selfish, prideful, greedy, and lustful, then you will be just as so, if not more so, lazy, irresponsible, selfish, prideful, greedy, and lustful after you say, I do. So pursue holiness at the present stage of your life. And don't think, well, I can only progress so far in my Christian life until something else happens, like marriage or, or so forth. Second, singleness is a biblical thing. Before we conclude that marriage is the only fulfilling life for a Christian, Paul argues there is great joy and purpose to be found in singleness. And he presents himself as evidence. There is no indication that Paul viewed his singleness, his celibacy, as a hindrance to joy, but he viewed it as a gift from God for greater service. No one writes more about joy in the New Testament than the Apostle Paul. When he writes his letters, he often closes by listing, give my greeting to so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, and you get to the end of the book of Romans, you've got a whole page of them. All these people that he knew by name, all these friendships and the joy that he experienced, and he was single. The reason I say that is because I told you my background that I knew from a relatively, in today's society, from a relatively young age, I wanted to be married. And I knew I needed to be married. I'm not going to bore you with the details. But also, I, I've never projected that onto other guys. I've never thought, well, I felt that way, therefore you must feel that way. No. And so if you're married and you wanted to be married from the time you were young or from an early age, and if you treat single people like, well, let me see if I can fix you up with somebody. I'll bet you just love to be married. You don't understand. Because so much of the Bible speaks of singleness. Yeah, maybe there's a place to fix somebody up and so forth. I'm just saying that if you always think, well, everybody who's not married really wishes they were married. I've got news for you, okay? Often I talk to singles and they'd like to be married. Often I talk to be married, to married, they'd like to be single. That's not good. Third, that being true, those of us who are married should never project onto singles that they really want to be married or are just enduring the pain and loneliness until that happens. No, that should be seen as God's calling on a person's life and it should be honored by others. That singles, singleness is not some junior varsity life waiting till you're called up to the big leagues of marriage. It's not that at all. Hal Farnsworth, when he uh, preached here, Hal was a pastor for many of you at, at the University of Georgia. He's a, he was an RUF campus minister with our denomination at Mississippi State and then several years at Vanderbilt, and then he planted the Redeemer Church in Athens. And when Hal was here... Uh, he, we asked him, said, what's the difference really between pastoring college students and then pastoring, uh, you know, older people? And uh, 
people out of college uh, at Redeemer, he said, well, it's pretty simple. When I was a campus minister, I was all the time telling people, you can't have sex. He said, then I get in the church, and I'm telling people all the time, you got to have sex. <laughs> Delete from future manuscript. <laughs> all right. You may not yet know whether God has marriage in mind for you. Maybe that is part of his will. Maybe it is not. But so much of what God's will for your life is clearly spelled out. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. The church is Christ's bride. And he is sanctifying us, preparing us when he's going to present us before the Father. Do you know Christ this morning? It's only through him that we really experience joy in this life and the promise of eternal life to come. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we pray for those of us, uh, whether single or married, that in whatever station we are right now, that you might enable us and empower us to grow in sanctification, to serve you with the resources, the time, the freedom, and so forth that you've given to us. And we ask your blessing on our lives, that we would walk with you in an immoral culture, much like Corinth. Uh, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.